welcome to more to come pw comic world's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing um recorded uh, at the pw offices in new york and sometimes other places <laughs> um i'm calvin reed senior news editor of publishers weekly and co-editor of pw comics world check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics well this week we have a, a really, uh, I think, a really terrific interview to offer you. Uh, it, um, we're talking with Frederick Schott, um, a, a, a translator, uh, interpreter, um, the author of um, Manga Manga, The World of Japanese Comics, uh, a, a book that sort of introduced me to the new phenomenon, for, not new phenomenon for me at the time of Japanese comics. Dreamland Japan, which I understand is a, a, is a follow-up to that book. Um, uh, uh, Fred Schott, welcome to More to Come. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, look, this is a, a great thrill to, to talk to you. You, In my mind, you certainly have been uh, associated uh, as a, an important, not obviously as a translator, but really as a guy that really um, really kind of brought out the, the magnitude, I'll put it that way, of Japanese comics publishing. Um, uh, your book, and and you're also the translator, if I'm not mistaken, of Shiro Masamune's work. I'm a ghost in the shell nut job, so his books have always been um, incredibly uh, important to me too. So uh, this is a great deal to get a chance to talk to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, part of what you said was cut off, so I'll just assume it was wonderful. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I hope this turns up on the recording, but yes, it was all praise. Uh, trust me. I uh, I mentioned, I don't know if you heard, I mentioned that you, you, you uh, also um, translated the works of uh, Shiro Masamune, right? Ghost That's in the correct. Shell? That's correct, yeah. yeah. Awesome. But we're here to talk with you about... Um, the Asamu Tezuka story, uh, A Life in Manga and Anime, uh, an 800-page manga biography of the great manga artist um, Asamu Tezuka, um, uh, generally, I think, referred to as the god of manga. Um, uh, it's just an amazing work. This is the first time it's been published in English in the U.S. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, I have to say, though, that's actually more than 800 pages. If you add in the appendix and everything else, it's about 900 and well, you're absolutely right. 18 or 15 pages. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I was only counting the actual pages of manga illustrations, but it's it's chunkier. And I've also left out your introduction as well. So that's a couple yeah. more pages. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it, it is indeed a monumental work, uh, which is probably what you would need to document uh, really the monumental legacy of uh, Sambu Tezuka. Um, uh, I know in your introduction you note that, uh, you know, uh, he's referred to as the god of manga. He's a revered figure in Japan. Uh, maybe not as well known in the U.S., but I think that that has changed over the last few years as manga has established itself as a genuine category in American comics publishing, don't you think? Oh, I, I definitely agree. He, um, Tezuka was really late, I think, to be introduced to Americans, mm-hmm. uh, given, the, given his stature in Japan. But in the last 10 years, um, the more and more his works have been translated. And I think more and more, at least in the comics world, more and more people are aware of him. Probably the average American has still never heard of him, though. But, um, you know, that, that uh, hopefully will change. Yes, I, I think it will. I, and hopefully this, this uh, new 
Well, it's new to to the U.S. market. Um, uh, the the Asamatezuka story. This book is new to the American market, but but it's not new in Japan. Now it's produced by Tezuka Productions. You, I, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, Tezuka Productions and about Toshoban, who is the artist who has created this incredible uh, biography. Yeah, it's really kind of an interesting um, project in that sense, in that um, it was created by essentially by Toshio Bang um, w- with the imprimatur of Tezuka Productions. It's, in fact, it's co-authored by Tezuka Bang and Tezuka Productions, which is kind of unusual because it's it's copyrighted in both of their names. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tezuka died in 1989, um, and as you can imagine, given his stature in Japan, it was, you know, it was a huge uh, turning point, really, in the history of manga in Japan, and also you could say in Japanese history, mm-hmm. because he was such a revered figure. So right after he died, uh, there was just a huge amount of media attention, and of course there were documentaries, and there were, you know, specials. And he was relatively and, young too. He was a, like, yeah, he was sixty years, years old, and. Although he had been sick for a while, people didn't realize how gravely ill he was. So his death came as a surprise to young people. In a way, I think it was sort of like maybe in, for my generation, for example, when John Lennon was shot, that kind of thing. Sure. It was it was a real shock, and and it was just huge, huge media events. So there was a huge amount of interest in Tezuka, and Tezuka Productions, um, which was Tezuka's company, had a manga department. And they still exist as a company. They no longer have a manga department. Uh, but at the time, they had uh, all of Tezuka's assistance in creating manga. And uh, it was decided to create a work which would basically fill a hole because Tezuka, as an artist, was so prolific and productive. He was always running multiple series. And when he died, uh, these series were not completed. Uh, for example, Ludwig B. and Faust, there were mm-hmm. uh, multiple series that were just left hanging. And especially at the uh, Asahi, which is one of Japan's larger publishers, they really needed something to to not only fill this hole in their publishing, but they thought it would be appropriate to create something that would be a biography of Tezuka himself, and kind of a memorial out of a sense of reverence, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they and Tezuka Productions agreed on creating a biography uh, to fill this kind of craving among the public. And uh, Toshio Bang was selected to do the artwork and basically create create the work uh, because he had been uh, one of Tezuka's, what he called the sub-chief assistant. Uh-huh. So he wasn't the primary uh, chief assistant, but he was a sub-chief <laughs> assistant. And that's what they call him in Japanese, a sub-chief assistant. Okay. <laughs> kind of a confusing nomenclature. Oh, well, as but... we go along, I, we, I, I mean, the, the whole organization, the army around him as it evolved is fascinating. But we'll talk more about that a little later as we go on. I mean, uh, prolific doesn't even begin to uh, describe uh, uh, Tezuka. Yeah, uh, but I, w- I just wanted to continue because uh, Toshio Ban actually began creating the story right after Tezuka uh, passed away. Uh, actually, I think in August or September of 1989. So he didn't have much time to 
um, you know, get all of his information together. And that's one thing he's, he's very uh, modest about. Uh, but he was working under huge time constraints. And then it began serialization in 1989 in a magazine in Japan, in an Asahi-affiliated magazine. And then it was published in book format in um, uh, 1992. Mm -hmm. So there was a time lag between the serialization and the public publication in book format. And it's come out in a couple editions in Japan. And its reception uh, in Japan? Um, well, you know, I, it, it, this is a, what would be called in Japanese a joho manga or informational manga. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not in the same category. It's not in the same genre as, say, like, you know, Naruto or something like that. Yes, well, so, one of so his own mega yeah, bestsellers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about, um, you know, millions and millions of copies probably but given the and i i actually don't know the exact publication circulation figures but i i do know that probably compared to what american comic publishers are used to it would make people's jaws drop <laughs> yes, that's, yes. that's just the way the industry in japan yes. works and um, actually would you describe the manga industry in japan um i i don't think most americans quite realize the size, the uh, magnitude of comics publishing in Japan. Yeah, I think it's hard for Americans to grasp this, really. But now with, you know, there are American fa fans of manga and anime. And, of course, there's Pokemon Go, which is all the rage. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, but that culture, that sort of cool Japan culture that people talk about now and, then, and that the Japanese government is really trying to export and promote, mm. it really... As, as its engine, you might say, manga or comic book culture. And um, Tezuka was really instrumental in, in creating the framework for that. But at one point in 1996, which was really the peak of the manga industry in Japan, about 40% of all um, publications, meaning books and magazines, excluding newspapers, mm -hmm. uh, took the form of manga. So that's manga in paper in paperbacks and also in magazines. So the scale of the industry is just enormous. And it, it's very hard to get exact figures in the United States, but I would suspect that comics are probably less than 5%. Of if not less than 1%. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah in, in the U.S. market, uh, yeah, I mean. So there's nothing like this elsewhere in the world. I mean, you can look at Mexico or you can look at France or you can look at the, mm -hmm. you know, other places where comics are popular. But there's just nothing yeah. like, like Japan. Uh, that's stated, of course, you know, they've taken a hit as well with, um, you know, with the web and the Internet and the publishing industries has taken quite a hit. And magazines in Japan in particular have really uh, taken a hit. But still, uh, even if the industry has shrunk uh, by, you know, 20 percent or more, it's vastly larger than anything. Oh, yeah. Has it really shrunk that yeah. much? I've heard that, you know, sales have been sort of, for a few years I've been hearing that sales are flat to down, but uh, has the industry shrunk to that degree, 20%? Um, you know, I don't have the exact figure mm. uh, on me, but the, the publishing industry overall in Japan has shrunk, mm. just as I think it probably has in the United States. Uh, in the manga business, what has really shrunk is magazines, and you'd see it um, maybe more than a 22% decline. Uh, mm -hmm. Magazines have really declined in mm -hmm. in circulations, and and you can really you don't need numbers to to see mm -hmm. this because if you're in Tokyo and you're riding a subway now, you'll very rarely see people actually reading physical 
uh, manga anymore. Everyone's on there. It's just like in America. Well, they're in all that sense, yeah, sure, right. Mm. And they're probably reading manga on their phones. On their phones, <laughs> yes. Yeah, which they sort of pioneered that in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is that, that paperbacks, uh, sales of paperbacks are quite constant. So that, interesting. That's, that's interesting. interesting phenomenon. So the, uh, the book form, or the, what's the Tonkoban, um, uh, that has not shrunk or... The Tonkobong is quite steady. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may have gone down a little bit, but it's it's um, it's been pretty firm. It's really the magazines that have taken a hit, uh, which you can imagine because there were so many of them. <laughs> okay. Yes. I know. Well, that's the well, as is interesting as you talk about how uh, the, the Tesco story was circulated. I mean, my understanding is that you know the magazines circulate. You know, um, these massive magazines circulate the various series. The most popular series are become Tonkobon. Um, is that generally how it works? That's right. Mm-hmm. And then they become tonkobo or paperbacks, and then they'll be animated. I mean, and the you know, then they're turned into novels and, you know, yes. operas. Light, <laughs> yes, we, we, we've tried to cover here. I mean, light Versus. novels seem to be making making their stand in the American market also. Yeah. Um, but let's jump back here. Well, you know what I'd love for you to do? I, you, you've explained a little bit about what Tezuka Produ- Productions is and, and Toshio Bond's work. What is? Can you talk about your relationship uh, of, with Asamu Tezuka? Oh, sure. Um, I was living in Japan in 1970, and that's when I really started seriously reading manga. And I became a fan of his work. Um, I didn't meet him at that time, but I I was really hooked on uh, some of his works, especially a work called uh, Hinodori or the Phoenix, which course, is translated sure. into English now. Yeah. Um, and then many years later, in 1977, um, some friends of mine uh, and I we put together a group called Dadakai mm-hmm. uh, in Tokyo, and there were two Japanese, uh, Shinji Sakamoto and Midori Ueda, and then also my friend Jared Cook. Um, and we decided to try to make Japanese manga better known overseas and translate some. And we decided to start at the top. And we thought, well, we like Tezuka. So we were able to approach Tezuka. And um, we were actually surprised when we went to his company that we were, we were able to meet him directly. And I mean, this is a huge, huge figure um, at that time. And it was. And yeah. we, were, we were nobody. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which is an understatement. Um, But he was interested in letting us attempt to translate the Phoenix, and we translated um, the first five volumes. And then they collected dust, basically, for 25 years. And then they were finally published um, by Viz Media in the United States many, many years later. And then Jared and I translated the remainder of the volumes so they're all out in English now. Uh, but that's how I first met Tezuka. And then both Jared and I, Dadakai itself didn't live very long, but Jared and I uh, had a relationship that lasted with Tezuka until his death in 89. And um, I'm still quite close to many of the, you know, his, the, the people in his company who worked under him and the whole the scene around him. Uh, both Jared and I would work as his interpreters mm-hmm. when he would come to the United States and um, I got to travel around the United States with Tezuka wow. uh, several times and uh, I, he, he was he was always very kind to me and I've, I've never really understood how anybody that busy could you know keep in touch with me and he would write me postcards and you know he 
occasionally call and he would always say, you know, why aren't you married yet? That kind of thing. <laughs> Um, well, if so I may say so, just from the oh, excuse me, go on. No, he had a huge influence on me personally. Uh -huh. in, in a way, he was kind of a, I'd say, almost a mentor in some way. Well, it, quite. And a he mentor. also he also wrote the the introduction to uh, manga manga. For oh me. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, uh, where to begin? Uh, uh, um, <laughs> One of uh, my from reading most of this biography, I'm actually on page 600, so I haven't quite finished, but but I'm I'm going I'm getting there. Um, uh, it's your hands are probably starting to hurt. Yeah, well, you know the thing is, if you if you love comics as I do and manga, I I I'm a manga fan, though I I don't consider myself a manga expert, but um, uh, here at PW, uh, I think I first started writing about manga, and it was actually. Um, Ghost in the Show. I think in the in the in the '90s, Dark Horse put out that first uh, first volume um, yeah, yeah. Uh, of it. Um, but from reading the book, I mean, he's it's this incredible mix of uh, of ambition and vision, but sort of down to earth uh, craziness also. Uh, and I also would would love for you to speak to. I mean, it's hard to realize he. Though manga existed uh, before Tezuka um, in the post-war period, world post World War II, I mean, literally he, along with other creators, but in some ways it seems completely led by Tezuka, essentially created the modern sense of manga that we have today, as well as anime. Uh, is that a fair description? Uh, obviously, Tezuka didn't, didn't create the whole m modern manga business or format or anime business himself. You know, it, it, that wouldn't have come about with out the creativity and you know enormous work of, of hundreds if not thousands of people not only artists but you know businessmen and everyone else mm -hmm. um, but I think you can say that Tezuka is really the person who created the framework for mm -hmm. not only the modern manga anime industry but and and the format but he really was the engine behind where he kick-started what today you might call cool Japan which would mm -hmm. encompass not only anime but even extend as far as many video games, uh, which which are often powered by the by the manga business. Um, and Tezuka was just such an unusual person. He just was he was almost off the charts, I guess. There are many many creative people after World War II who were involved in manga, and there are many people who created you know fabulous uh, works and and made a huge contribution to the creation of modern manga you know people like Mizuki Shigeru and others um, but no one no single individual I think created the framework that really made this industry made it possible for the in industry to develop and explode as much as it has today as Tezuka and he did that by not only helping to pioneer of course not only by himself, but helping to pioneer this sort of long arc uh, story manga, what they call the Japan story manga format, uh, but also taking his own work and then animating it as a 30-minute TV series. So his Astro Boy manga, which was created and started in 1951, around 1951, then he animated that in 1963 and thus created Japan's first 30-minute TV animated animation series. And, there, and that created the pattern and it made it possible for what we enjoy today, which is, you know, people who have a, they create a manga work and then it's animated for a TV series and goes on and on and on. 
And of course, uh, if any if there's any property by Tezuka that Americans would recognize, it would be Astro Boy. It would be Astro Boy, although I think in terms of manga, now his best-selling work in the United States, interestingly, is probably Buddha. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. And in by fact, far, by yeah. far away, the best-selling yeah, work. Yeah, uh, because after Viz, Vertical Inc. has published um, a number of his um, signature works. That's right. Uh, what's interesting to me, of course, is that uh, Buddha is not uh, Tezuka's most popular work in Japan by any means. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it's in Japan, it's Blackjack and Blackjack. Is yes, of course. Off yeah. the charts. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. This is a, the the story of the Doctor, right? That kind of That's a Doctor right. superhero. <laughs> The, yeah, the, the doctor, the, the illegal uh, outlaw doctor. Yeah. And, uh, of course, in Japan, it's, uh, I think it's 35 or 45 million copies of this yeah, in circulation. Yeah, well, so it's just... More of the crazy numbers that come yeah, out of uh, yeah, Japanese publishing. Yeah, but a very different situation than in the United States. So, And, of course, um, on that note, I mean, another one of the other draw-dropping things about uh, Tezuka and his... In- incredible level of energy and productivity is that he was a doctor. He was studying to be a doctor while he was creating this amazing legacy and fueling a new kind of industry. Right. And I think that um, that really makes him quite exceptional because it's quite rare for doctors to become <laughs> I mean, you, it's just incredible. <laughs> uh, he he wasn't really practicing. I should say he wasn't a practicing physician yeah. when he when he was um, creating most of his manga. Uh, he often used to joke. He used to tell me he said he one of his 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 mentors had told him he would be doing a finger to his patients by not becoming a doctor. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you're you're dropping out a little bit. Could you repeat that? You know, he, he often used to joke, and he would tell me that uh, he's one of his mentors, his, one of his teachers in, in medical college had told him that he would be doing patients a favor by not becoming <laughs> a doctor. And I see. <laughs> and there's an allusion to that in this book. It's a little, little different than the way I remember him telling it, but it, basically it's the same, yeah. same little episode. Well, look, you know what? I want to quickly jump through some parts in the book, I mean, to, and to give our listeners a, a little bit sense of his life. So, uh, Tezuka was born in 1936, right, in, uh, uh, in uh, Toniyaka City in Osaka? Uh, he was born in 1928. Oh, excuse me, 1928. Yeah, yeah. My bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but he was raised in, uh, in Takarazuka City? Right. And Takarazuka had a big influence on him because of not only the nature in in the area because he was a, as a child he was a budding uh, entomologist you might say oh, he right, just yes, loved, he collecting loved the study insects. of insects yeah yeah so that had a huge influence on him as a child and then also Takarazuka is the birthplace and and the center for the Takarazuka all women's women's yes. theater which is uh, very unique again to Japan and Tezuka's mother was a huge fan of the theater, so Tezuka himself, from a very young age, was going to the theater. And that theater and the the format of it and the construct of it and the style of it is, had a heavy influence on many of Tezuka's stories and his storytelling. So he became very interested in drama at a, a very young age. And of course, because it was an all-women's troupe, it's one of the reasons that you see many of the tropes that you do today in... Um, in girls' comics, in, uh-huh. in comics for women, 
and, and Tezuka himself with his work, um, we know it in English as Princess Knight, but Nibun mm-hmm. no Kishi, he really kind of um, began the whole story manga format for, for girls and for women in Japan. Um, his parent. You mentioned uh, his mother, but uh, his 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 father was influential too. I mean, as I understand it, according to the uh, to the to the manga, there uh, there were comics in the house, uh, and his uh, dad was really interested in was interested in in movie making. In That's films. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, his father was quite an exceptional person, I think, for his era, in the sense that he uh, was very interested in film and photography, and they had a little a, a cartoon movie projector at home. A home movie projector, which was would have been very rare. So his his family was quite well off, and his father was uh, salaried sarariman, uh, uh, as they say in Japanese, mm-hmm. a salaried worker. But uh, he did very well for for himself, and in the in the home they had lots of um, manga from because there were pre-war manga in Japan, mainly in book format, which is interesting in and of itself. They're different from post-war manga, but uh, in the house, they had manga that Tezuka grew up reading, and he also saw in the magazines they had reproductions of American works as well, mm-hmm. uh, newspaper newspaper comics. So he's influenced by uh, George McManus in the United States. Mm-hmm. In addition, in addition to uh, um, you know cartoons like uh, Popeye and things like that, and you can see those influences mm-hmm. in his art artwork today. And and uh, he was also a huge film fan uh, as well as animation fan and uh, Disney was one of his influences is that accurate? that's right he was a huge fan of of film and and as with theater his mother was a a fan not only of theater but also film so she would take him to see movies as a boy and then uh, of course during the war American movies were banned but after the war Tezuka would go to movies as often as he could and it's hard for us to imagine how difficult it is to see say you know bambi 80 times which tezuka <laughs> often bragged about it's because we can just turn on a, you know have it streamed into your home you can watch it for a month if you want to but in those days you actually had to go to a, a theater physically <laughs> <laughs> and pay money and see the thing so he saw it, he, he would see films that he liked over and over and over and over again so the disney influence is just huge in Tezuka in his art style and he idolized Disney Disney and he was very frank about that Disney was his hero he would have loved to have uh, done what Disney did and and create a Disneyland as well Uh, Uh, but he never quite got around to that um, didn't he I mean as I read on in the biography uh, he had a thing he wanted what the 365 movies a year uh, and he, uh, the, at one section that describes him sort of sneaking away from his fevered working environment to run and see parts of movies that he had. Yeah, yeah, he would he would do that, and he would go see the best part of one movie, and then the best part of another movie, because he would read about them in advance, and he knew where to to uh, what to skip and what was interesting to him, and what he could use, and what could inspire him, that sort of thing. He was really a uh, sort of a dream factory in the sense yeah. that he was just constantly coming up with ideas, and he needed he needed input to come up with these ideas for stories and characters. So he he read voraciously, and he watched movies, and uh, 
talked with people and was constantly absorbing information, almost like a sponge, you might say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as a child, it turns out he was he was a bit of a of a drawing prodigy, right? He sort of you know immediately started drawing and. Later on, as I read in the biography, uh, during his school years, he had this prodigious memory. There's a section in the biography that talks about how, how he would look at his classmates, uh, you know, um, uh, memorize them, and then do a drawing of the whole group from memory. Yeah, that's in the in the book. I wasn't aware uh, of some of those episodes, but I was struck in the book that they they emphasize, for example, his ability to draw a circle. So. Yeah, because that reminded me, of course, the stories of Michelangelo. And yeah, yeah, doing yeah, it's doing a perfect circle. Yeah, but he had a he had an extraordinary memory. There's no doubt about it. I often was struck because he would remember things that we had been talking about uh, years later. And I have a terrible memory, so I would forget these things. And he would say, "Well, you know, you said this or that," and, and I'd, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And he would often uh, he would see things, and then you would see them appear in his stories later yeah. he'd draw them so he had a i wouldn't say a photographic memory but he he had a something close to it so he um obviously he was in japan during the war um uh did the experience of the war uh, of the war uh, affect him as an artist uh, hugely and not only as an artist but as a person mm -hmm. uh, he had a, a political ideology which was quite common to his generation uh he was extremely anti-war um, almost pacifist, you could say. Mm. And that was very common among people his age group who survived the war, because, of course, many of his age did not. Uh, Tezuka was very lucky in the sense that he wasn't drafted. He was, um, I think, mainly able to avoid being drafted because he was in medical um, college. But he nearly was killed during the bombing of Osaka because he mm. was... Like all the students at the time, they were forced to work in factories. They weren't. They couldn't go to school at the end of the war. Everybody was mobilized, and, mm. and his factory was bombed, and he just barely escaped with his life, which is detailed in in the yes. book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It and that experience, is. and also seeing, uh, you know, there were in those days the the U.S. was firebombing uh, Tokyo and Osaka, and of course the casualty rate was enormous and. Tokyo, yes. you had 100,000 people die in three days, and Osaka wasn't quite that bad, but nonetheless, Tezuka, when he, when his factory was bombed and he actually um, left the area and tried to get home, he had to walk by this river in the area, and he saw just, you know, scores of dead bodies burned. People were trying to get into the water to, to uh, you know, to survive. Um, because of the firebombing. So that experience, and then also seeing after the war, starvation of people, yeah. uh, was just seared into his memory. And and, and it, I don't like the word inform, but it's so popular that I use it. It really informs all of his subsequent... Mm -hmm. well, informed all of his subsequent uh, understandable. Um, now, um, as I understand it, his one of his first published works... Uh, was in around 1946, the first serial comic strip, but the Machan, Machan Diary. Hello? <laughs> um, Are you there? Hello? Something we're more used to seeing now, 
Although in the United States, it would probably be six or eight panels, but it's sort of like a, a daily daily comic strip kind of Hey, thing. Fred, uh, you know what? You dropped out for a second there. Okay. Could you repeat that? Sure. Yeah. Um, Machan no Nikicho was kind of like, uh, or Machan's diary was kind mm-hmm. of like what we might be used to in the United States is uh, a daily comic strip in a yeah. newspaper, although not very many people, I think, or read comic strips in newspapers anymore, but that, that's the kind of format. Here, it would probably this is 1946, so... <laughs> yeah, here it would be six or eight panels. There, there's a there's a very standard format in Japan, and it's usually four panels. Mm-hmm. And it's still quite common in, in newspapers. It's, it's very popular. And it's So his, his first works were in that format. They were totally unlike mm-hmm. uh, what people today think of as... Japanese manga in the United States, you know, not, not these long format, multi-volume, thousands of pages right, kind yes. of thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I'm going to jump from there, though, to uh, New Treasure Island. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is an example of uh, really an early form of manga story uh, aimed at the children's market? Yeah, aimed at the children's market. And at that time, uh, Tezuka was working in the Osaka area. And Osaka had a manga culture that was quite unique. Uh, there were these very cheap, inexpensive manga books that were being created. And Tezuka, when he created New Treasure Island with Shichima Sakai, who was an established artist at the time, um, they created this work, which was, it really utilized a lot of Tezuka's skills and also his fascination with American animation and comics so that it had this much more visual quality to it and it was a longer story. And it just captured people's, young people's imaginations. So it's sold, um, it just astounded the publishing industry in Osaka. This was really quite separate in those days from what was going on in Tokyo. Um, But in Osaka, it was a sensation. Mm And sold so many copies that that really kickstarted uh, Tezuka's career, and it showed that he was trying to pioneer something quite new, a new format. Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about his? I mean, with the aspects of what he was doing that was so different um, for manga artists at the time. I think the main thing is that he took. Uh, the traditional format of comics, which we might be familiar with in the United States or even in Japan in those days, and sort of decompressed them. And he believed that comics as a medium could be used to depict anything that you could depict in novels or in films. So he had an ambition at a very early age, and he, he wanted to expand the potential of manga or comics as an expressive medium. So he wanted to create longer stories and he wanted to make them much more visual. Hmm. And so in the beginning, that was difficult to do because obviously manga were not as long as they are today and and he didn't have access to, you know, the multi-volume sort of series. But by sort of pushing, pushing the industry and constantly pushing for longer works, uh, he was able to create something that's was decompressed, you might say. So in an American comic book, a superhero comic book of the 1950s, what would take maybe two pages to depict, he would eventually spend 20 or 40 pages depicting that, that sort of thing. Maybe one panel instead of one panel, he would have two pages or three yeah. pages. 
Yeah, I mean, my, my, one, certainly one of the things that I encountered when I first started reading manga was the ability of manga artists to really map, you know, uh, in, in a very expressive way, a, a much wider range of emotions and, uh, and you know, uh, pathways toward emotions than you generally saw, in, certainly in mainstream American superhero comics. That's right, yeah. And, of course... The artists in America, even if they wanted to do that, they wouldn't have been able to do it because they, it was just too expensive. Yeah. yeah. Part of that is, you know, printing costs and use of color. And in Japan, they didn't have color. So it was a very different situation. So I'm going to jump around a little bit because I want to get us up to the release of um, of uh, Astro Boy as an anime. But but I do want you to talk a little bit about his working process. And after he became more and more popular, uh, I mean... This it mean it reads almost like a screwball comedy when you start reading about how he was able to work, how he was working on eight or more serializations at the one time, and this army of editors from competing magazines who were chasing him from Tokyo to Osaka. He produced work it seemed for every publisher in Japan, uh, with you know the, essentially the same deadlines because they were all predominantly monthlies if I'm not mistaken at the time. But it right, reads the, like a screwball comedy. Yeah, in the beginning they were all monthlies, and then of course they became weeklies, and then of course it became even more hectic and chaotic because their deadlines were so short. But it was like a screwball comedy, and uh, it, it's just amazing to see or to hear some of the stories that are that are in this book describing how he would, you know, try and throw off his editors who were chasing him and trying to get pages and uh, from him because. There were so many magazines that wanted his work. Of course, he could do that. He had, he, and he, he, it became, became an addiction for him. He had to have editors chasing him in order for him to get anything done. Yeah. And I, I personally experienced that because uh, once on his trip to the United States, uh, he was enjoying himself too much and he got behind on his work. So they actually flew out an editor from Japan all the way to San Francisco. And this is around, <laughs> I don't know, 1980 three or four or something like that, a long time ago when it was it was more difficult to fly between Japan and the United States than it is today. But the one magazine actually flew out an editor and they tried to, you know, corral him into a room in the Mark Hopkins Hotel here in San Francisco and, and get him to uh, <laughs> deliver his pages that they desperately needed. But he was he was addicted to that. He needed it. And he was one of the few people who, of course, could could do that because he was so popular. Well, that's I mean, I mean, he also uh, I really try to give the listeners a, a sense of this. I mean, you know, magazines uh, had editors assigned to him and, you know, they basically couldn't leave him until they had pages to take back to the office. That's right. Even and if it would... took weeks or days or whatever. That's right, and they would sleep, uh, you know, in, in his uh, in his office, and, and they couldn't go home. They couldn't go back. So. <laughs> and and, and at, at one point, it seems that the ed- the editors all sort of formed a pool. They sort of organized it, sort of, basically, so that everybody would be a little it would be a little bit fairer. But what I also found amazing was that he would often be working on multiple uh, stories simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. I I had not been aware of this system that the editors had arranged among themselves, but in the in the book they do a really great job of showing yes, how that, so that evolved. Crazy. It's really it's really quite <laughs> funny. And and 
I had a, a friend the other day who actually uh, um, interviewed me, Leonard Reifus, who's a comic publisher and artist in his own right. But he was saying, you know, he was just puzzling over the fact that publishers could afford to have all these editors sent out and, and, and try and hound and Tezuka. And it's true. It, from an American perspective, it doesn't make any economic sense at all. It's, but it's crazy. I think it, I think it reflects the fact that Tezuka's manga were selling so well mm. that publishers, they were just desperate to get work from him because he was a gold mine and it was a, a way for them to make an enormous mm. amount of money as well. Mm. Um, I, I had the the good fortune. Um, I think this was about two thousand nine, uh, nine to meet the uh, the great um, uh, Gagaka uh, manga uh, artist um, uh, Yashihiro uh, Tatsumi in oh, San Diego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah, he yeah. got a I think he got an uh, what does it call it an ink an ink spot an ink. <laughs> yes. they, have, they have various awards. Yes, uh, yes. We got to hear him speak, but I also got to meet him personally and talk. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the post-war years, and he said, uh, uh, and, and this was not into romant- it was not a romantic memory, that um, working in manga was like going to war. And, he, and, and in the manga biography of Tezuka, they talk about that the Tezuka was responsible for this process of the hotel, confining artists in hotels till they got their pages done, because he seemed to often be running off to hotels to escape his editors. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Tezuka started that, um, and in fact, actually, you, you, you could find that with outside of the world of manga, but also. Mm-hmm. Uh, novelists and so forth in Japan. I see. Uh, if you were a super successful yeah. novelist, you might be confined in a hotel room by your publisher. I see. But Tezuka really exploited that because, <laughs> again, he he learned to depend on it, yeah. and without the pressure, uh, he had a hard time. Interesting. You know, getting his work done because he was always accepting so much work. And in terms of the working simultaneously on. On works in, in this book, at least, they do a fabulous job of showing how absurd that was because sometimes you put the wrong character, yes, in the wrong yeah. story, that kind of thing. Um, but I didn't realize the extent to which, in 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 the in in those days, he he was able to sort of you know draw multiple stories and multiple parts of different stories. I didn't yes. realize how, how I didn't realize the extent of of the chaos that he well, lived in it's, it's until I read this And yeah. not only that, working around the clock, working days on end without sleep, yeah. working, yeah. laying down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, he never, working at every free moment, working yeah. on planes, trains. In fact, he would, uh, he would go to places to do work and couldn't do it, and he ended up doing the work on the train or the plane there or back. It's, it's sort of, Amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. And I, you know, uh, some people say, well, how could he have done these things? And maybe he made it up, maybe it's made up, and so forth and so on. But I personally experienced this because I once went to Florida with him and they were making a documentary about him. So there was a Japanese TV crew that came along and they were shooting him in Disney World, you know, walking around and having a good time. And um, they were exa- the crew were exhausted. You know, they had jet lag and and they hadn't slept. I actually saw yeah. a, a one of the, the lighting people, the gaffers. Yeah. He was holding like a 10k lamp, yeah. supporting the thing. And I saw him fall asleep on his feet. I've never seen anybody do that in my life. He fell asleep standing. And then Tezuka's going through all this, and he has jet lag, and of course he's 
you know, normally only sleeping four hours a night. But I remember that evening he he said, well, you know, good night, Fred. And he, he went off. And, and then the next morning uh, I saw him and he hadn't slept. He'd been drawing manga and he yeah. handed me these pages and he needed to send them back to Japan. And, you know, he'd he'd inked the main characters. Uh, he'd put in the, the mm-hmm. he'd penciled in the, He'd done not only the pencils, but he'd inked the main characters and, and, and he'd penciled in the dialogue. And later back in Japan, of course, his assistants would do much yeah. of the backgrounds and the details and that sort of thing. But I was just astounded. You know, yeah. he hadn't slept at all. And he was fine. You know, he had his beret on and his glasses yeah. and he's, he's <laughs> grinning in the morning. And I'm a wreck. You know? <laughs> uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead because I, I can't talk with you forever, even though I'm tempted to do so. But I want to I want to jump a little bit ahead and, and maybe have you talk a little bit about um, the launch of uh, Astro Boy and his and 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 his work in animation. Um, so we're talking the early 60s I and mean, he had done the manga many years earlier. But then uh, he created was this when he created uh, Mushi Productions? That's right. Yeah, he. um Tezuka, of course, had become so popular in Japan creating manga that he'd actually earned earned quite a bit of money in in the manga world. At least he was wealthy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was one of the few people that could really afford to try to do this. But he he very he was always fascinated by animation, and in fact, he used to joke. He used to say that that. Uh, and manga was his wife, and animation, <laughs> animation was his mistress. That's the way he always okay. used to put it. Uh, and and he just would do anything to be able to create uh, animation. So that was had always been his dream. And when he got to a point where he had enough money, uh, he'd actually worked for a while. As this, they show in the in the book, he 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 worked part time for a while at Toy, learning animation and and learning the you know, the skills he needed and what he would need. And then he put together this company, Mushi Productions, and they created uh, the first 30-minute animation TV series for Japan, which was Astro Boy. And at the time, mm-hmm. people didn't think it would be possible to create something like that because uh, of the speed required to turn around each mm-hmm. episode because it was a weekly. Um, but he was able to do it by, you know, putting to get people together and, and figuring out all these extreme ways to economize and well that's uh, save money <laughs> that's part and, of the story right, also right, working his right. staff and himself that's right to beyond the extreme beyond, right, the, beyond what the you extreme. would you would yeah. ask anyone to do yeah um yeah. um and yet but they seem to understand that they were creating uh you know so uh, really a new form of entertainment yeah i think they at the, that time I suspect that they felt they were part of a, almost a revolution. They were creating yeah. something. Because also there was an element of national pride involved because mm-hmm. Japan had no 30-minute animated TV series then. Uh, they were watching the Jetsons and mainly imported uh, mm-hmm. like Han- Hanna-Barbera and uh, UBI kind of films. Um, so there was there was this element of, of pride involved as well. And then the other thing I think, and this relates to how hard it is for us to understand today, how hard Tezuka worked is that Japan was in its period of high economic growth. Mm-hmm. And after the war, I think there was this feeling among many people of Tezuka's age in particular that they were so lucky to have survived the war. Yeah. And they just wanted to do anything yeah, <laughs> as imagine. much as they as much as they could to 
to advance their careers and their work. And so there was this work ethic, which really doesn't exist in Japan anymore, you might say, of, of really overworking, yeah. especially among men. And one of the biggest criticisms you can make of Tezuka is that he, I think, set this precedent for overworking among members of his generation in the manga business and in the anime business. And unfortunately, many of the people who idolized Tezuka and went on to become manga artists and animators, um, many of them died around the same age, you know, around 60, 63. Hmm. Uh, and it's partly because of overwork. At least that's Incredible. my, that's my, mm-hmm. that's yeah. my feeling about it. Well, if, well, I tell you once, once you read this book, it's, it, you do wonder how, how he could keep the pace up and still create and still have be so have such a fertile imagination. Yes, and, and, and also how he could have the time to, you know, do these other things that he did, which were be a, a media figure. He was going around, to, you know, he would go to all the industry parties, and he would go see movies, and he would hang out with, uh, you know, his colleagues, other other artists and novelists and filmmakers. And that's the thing that always amazed me. I mean, how did he have time to write me, a, like, a New Year's card? I, I yeah. never figured that out. And one of the things that I really, and we're not going to have time to, to talk about, is that, I mean, he was a part of these various movements among artists um, in the post-war effort on up, even through the, the Gegeka movement. He was a part of these movements and these, you know, working with groups of artists to, to, to you know, do manifestos and to really, you know, think about and change the, the artistic direction of manga. I mean, he, he was doing this while he was like a superstar. That's right, and he was also involved with uh, science fiction in Japan. Yes, of course, and we even get a chance to talk about that. Yeah, and, and the book talks about that. He was very good friends with. Uh, I remember going drinking with him once, and, and there, you know, one of his drinking buddies is Sakyo Komatsu, who's one of the more famous Japanese sci-fi novelists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking, how does he have time to do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, Fred, look, I, I could I could go on and on, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I was going to try and bring Peter uh, uh, Peter Goodman. The uh, publisher of um, of Stonebridge Press on, but I don't think we're going to have the time. Um, uh, I, 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 we're going to have to wrap up here, but I, I sure. just want to thank you. This is a real thrilled uh, to talk to you. I'm, uh, you know, I, you know, I, certainly your work helped turn me into a manga fan, and you've probably done this, repeated that, you know, with <laughs> hundreds of thousands of millions of people across North America. Oh so. no, 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 no. Yeah, but, well, but you I'm and sorry. others. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sorry that uh, the the connection sometimes is cut out. And, and did you uh, did you lose my praise? The yeah, yeah, use yeah. of well, praise I, of you. I, I just have to assume you said only good things. But, Trust me, but, I'm um, like you would blush. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope I didn't talk too long. No, and, uh, not at all. I'm sorry, sorry you didn't have a chance to talk with Peter, but I'm sure some other time he would love to talk with you. We'll get back um, to him. I mean, one of the things yeah. I've written quite a bit about Stonebridge Press in the past, and they seem to be doing a lot more manga these days, and with plans to do more manga. So. Um, so I expect to talk with him. But look, Fred, thank you so much for thank being you. on More to Come. Thank you, Calvin. All right.